0: If you can turn to your Bible so long to that portion that uh, Grant has just read to us, Revelation chapter 7, uh, verse 9 to 17, we're going to come to that in a minute. Um, but before we continue in our study this morning, um, I need to just say a few words. I want to start this morning by saying that I really do uh, appreciate that last week was difficult for some of you, um, especially the fact that I spiritualized, in inverted commas, the meaning of the 144,000 of the tribes of Israel to mean uh, the whole number of the church of Jesus Christ. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please go back and watch last week's uh, service. And I appreciate that for those of you who've grown up uh, on the futurist or particularly the dispensational view of Revelation, that you've been taught to interpret the Bible literally. Literally. And in that system of teaching, you may have even been taught that if anyone tries to spiritualize the book of Revelation in order to deviate from a purely literal understanding, then you should disregard them, or at least you should disregard their teaching. And so I realize that this has been a a struggle for some of you. But hopefully those of you who have got to know me over the last three years will know that I have a very high view of the Word of God. And I preach often about my complete belief in the absolute inerrancy of Scripture, that it is without error, and I preach often against the danger of, of twisting and playing games with the Scripture to, uh, to, to suit our um, own agendas. But I was asked a question this week, which I would like to address just briefly this morning, which is this. Clinton, who determines when to take Revelation literally and when to take it spiritually or symbolically. And, and what principles determine how we navigate this? And this wasn't the first time this question has been asked. And so I thought I need to just take a pause this morning. My, my simple answer to that question is that God's word must determine when we take something literally and when we take it symbolically. To refer to a spiritual reality as opposed to an earthly reality. Which is why I've sought in the series so far to base Uh, Every explanation of this very symbolic, apocalyptic language being used in Revelation to base the understanding of that on the Old Testament references from which that language is drawn, uh, or from the clear New Testament teaching uh, which tells us how to understand the meaning of those symbols. We must remember that in Revelation chapter 4 verse 2, John tells us after the, the, the the seven letters to the seven churches, John tells us that he was taken up in the Spirit into heaven. And then he begins to describe all of these things that he sees. And so in its simplest understanding, the whole of Revelation chapter 4 to 22 must be understood spiritually. Because John's whole vision is in the Spirit describing spiritual truths. And so, for example, let me just try and help bring this to, to, to clarity here. I've not heard anyone come to me in the past six weeks and accuse me of spiritualizing the reference to the Lion of Judah as being Jesus Christ. Nor has anyone come to me and said to me that when I spiritualized the lamb that was slain, now standing, referring to Jesus Christ, I've made a mistake. No one accused me of spiritualizing the lion and the lamb. Why? Because it's abundantly clear from the the Old Testament and the New that Jesus Christ is both the lion and the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But I hope you can see as you look at the words on the pages in front of you in in chapter 5 that what John sees is not literal. Jesus is not a literal lion walking around in heaven. He is not a literal lamb. But the spiritual truths to which these pictures, these symbols point, are certainly real. Jesus Christ is real. He is the the lion-like king of his people. He is the lamb-like sacrifice who was slain for our sins. And he is very much risen from the dead and standing. And so, as we think about this lamb symbol for a moment, referring to Jesus Christ, we know that a, a lamb does not have fingers. It cannot literally walk up to the throne and take the scroll out of the, the one who sits on the throne and, and with its little hoofs open the seals. Of course not. And yet, literally, that is what John said he saw. We also know that God is a spirit. He does not have a body like us. And yet we are told that the lamb took the scroll from the right hand of God on the throne. We also know that you you cannot unravel a scroll. We looked at that. A scroll is rolled up and it's got seven seals across the open flap. You cannot open the scroll until all seven seals have been broken. And yet what John sees is that as each scroll Seal is broken, revelation comes out of the scroll. And, and forgive me for this, but it's really puzzling how the four horses and their riders could fit inside the scroll. You see, I, I need to remind you that as we came right back from the beginning of the book, this is a highly symbolical book. The nature of this book belongs to apocalyptic genre. And John, in the very first vision in chapter 1, he saw Jesus standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And we are told that he held seven stars in his right hand. And then immediately after that, John tells us that Jesus laid his right hand on him, on John, which is impossible if he's got the seven stars in his hand. You see, it's, it's all quite illogical and confusing if you want to take everything literally. But then Jesus himself gives John the key to understanding the nature of this book. In chapter 1, he said to John in verse 19, Write the things that you see, those that are and, and those that are to take place. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the churches. In other words, the stars represent some other spiritual truth. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so if we are to take Jesus seriously, we need to understand that all of what John sees in these visions in Revelation are first and foremost spiritual. Now sometimes the connection between the the vision of the symbol and the spiritual reality to which it points is very clear. For example, with the lion and the lamb, the the symbol and the reality of Jesus, it's very clear. Sometimes the the symbol, the the connection is harder to figure out. For example, the 144,000 as referring to the whole church. But the key to faithful interpretation of God's word in Revelation is to let the rest of Scripture define as clearly as possible what we are to understand about those symbols. And I'd like to say that if we move outside of Scripture to determine the meaning of the symbols, that then becomes pure speculation, and anything is possible, which I do not believe is God's purpose in giving us His Word. And so lastly, before I continue this morning, just again, on a, on a deeply pastoral note, I want to plead with you to not let this book of Revelation and particularly differences on the details cause division amongst the body of Christ. We are to unite as the people of God to see Jesus Christ and Him glorified in our midst. And, and so I want to urge you again that if you have questions about the studies. Please feel free to contact me in the week, as some of you have done. Um, Please avoid getting together in little groups to kind of um, pastor bash the the Sunday sermon. Rather, come and speak to me. Come and say, I don't understand why you said what you said. Help me. And I'll gladly do that. And if I find out uh, that others are struggling with the same thing, I'll try and better address that from the pulpit. I'd be happy to meet with you, but but let's be on our guard against the tactics of the evil one um, to use the word of God, and particularly the study in Revelation, to sow disunity amongst God's people. Revelation is God's word. I believe without a shadow of a doubt that it was written for our benefit and edification, because it's part of all Scripture. And I carry the great weight of knowing that I will be judged more strictly by God for the way in which I teach this book every week. So please pray for me. Pray for the wisdom of God to be given to me. Pray for his help and guidance as I prepare these sermons. And pray for God's protection uh, over us as a church, that this would be a time of strengthening us in the Lord Jesus Christ and not uh, breaking us down. Right, so please turn in your Bibles now to chapter 7, verse 9 to 17. Um, we're going to have a problem with time this morning. It says it's better to seek uh, forgiveness than to ask for permission. Um, so we're going to have a problem. Those who are serving tea and coffee, please serve those who are arriving early uh, for the second service. And if you are those people who like to keep me honest, and I know there's lots of you regarding to how long my sermons are supposed to be, um, you can start your stopwatch only now. Um, Okay, so so last week we we looked at the opening of the sixth seal and the, the at the end of chapter six and the opening of the seventh seal at the beginning of chapter eight and we saw that they formed these two book ends around chapter seven and, and they were both describing the same event the this event of the final day of the Lord's judgment. Firstly, from the perspective of those on earth in chapter 6, and then from the perspective uh, of heaven, the judgment of God being poured out from heaven uh, in chapter 8. And in between, we saw the sealing of the 144,000 in the first half of chapter 7. But before the the judgment of God is, is poured out on the earth on this great and awesome day, resulting in all the wicked being destroyed for all eternity, we saw that there was this angel of the Lord who instructed that the the four winds be held back, that no judgment come on the earth until this number uh, of God's people had been sealed and I sought to explain that in line with the whole trajectory of Scripture, uh, of a Christ-centered, gospel-centered reading of Scripture, this 144,000 was a spiritual reference to the true Israel of God, which represents the whole church of Jesus Christ on earth, the complete number of the church of Jesus Christ. And we saw that it was only those individually sealed believers who would stand on the Day of Judgment. For they bore the name of Jesus and the name of his Father um, on their foreheads. And now today we continue in this heavenly vision, and we see again in verse 9 this phrase, After this, after this, I looked. In other words, after having seen the, the vision of the four angels holding back the, the four winds of judgment, after that vision, John goes on to tell us what he saw next. And so there are four questions that we need to ask uh, about this next vision to understand what God is wanting us to, to learn from this section of his word. We need to ask, who did John see? Secondly, what were they doing? Thirdly, where did they come from? Uh, and fourthly, what are they enjoying? And so that's the outline of of the questions we're going to ask ourselves as we look at this great multitude listed in chapter 7. So let's work our way through the questions. Who then did John see in verses 9 and 10? And we are told that after that scene of of the sealing of the 144,000, John saw a great multitude that, that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb. And so the group we have before us is a beautiful description of the universal church of Jesus Christ, being made up of every believer who has ever lived and gone to be with the Lord. Theologians over the years have referred to this group in Revelation chapter 7 as the church victorious. The church triumphant is another phrase. This group is the complete number of saints, both Jews and Gentiles. Every believer back in chapter 2 and 3 who conquered, who remained faithful to Jesus is part of this multitude. Every saint of God that has ever died and gone to heaven is part of this multitude. Please note that this phrase which John uses to describe this group is exactly the same phrase He used previously in chapter 5. Look back to chapter 5 verse 9. When John was taken up into heaven, he saw the four living creatures and the 24 elders falling down in worship before the Lamb. And we read that they sang a new song, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals for you were slain and by your blood. So what did Jesus' death purchase? What did his blood purchase as we've just celebrated? People for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so back then we saw that, that all of heaven worships God for this great work of salvation. The, the elders, the, the angels, an innumerable multitude of all creation worshiping God. And now in chapter 7, John actually sees this multitude of believers standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And I want you to see today that this group in chapter 7 verse 9 is exactly the same group that we considered last week. The 144,000, the full number of those who are sealed while living on the earth, what happens to them when they die? They become part of this great multitude in heaven. Look back to verse 4. John tells us, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And now in verse 9, he looks. He heard a number, and now he looks. And what does he behold? He beholds this group. He doesn't behold 144,000 literal Jewish men. Instead, he beholds this great multitude that no one can number from every tribe and and people and language under heaven. This is exactly the same um, way or language used in chapter 5. Look back at chapter 5, verse 5. In chapter 5, verse 5, an angel tells John. John heard something. What did he hear? He heard the angel announcing, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he heard, There's a lion in our midst. Then immediately he goes on, but when he looked, what did he see? He saw a lamb standing in the midst of the throne. The elder wasn't confused because Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. And so, too, here, John hears about the symbolic number of 144,000 who are sealed on the earth. And then he looks and he sees this fuller picture of the church. Victorious, the church triumphant over all the ages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The throne, by the way, therein is symbolic; the Lamb is symbolic. The hundred and forty-four thousand and the great multitude are symbolic. They point to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, what we have here, if we allow God's word to interpret itself, is nothing other than the wonderful final fulfillment of the promises and the prophecies of God which were given back in Genesis 12 to Abraham. These are perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in the church. And I, I want to show you that this morning. And for the sake of time, I'm going to just bring the scriptures up um, so that you can read with me. Genesis 12 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you, Abram, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there we have the foundational promise or covenant which God made with Abram. Then, some years later, uh, God returns when it seems that the promises uh, are not coming to pass. Sarah is old and barren. And we read in Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Behold, my covenant is with you. And listen to this. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. For your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you third time into nations, and kings will come from you. And don't skip over verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. And to your offspring after you. And so it's crystal clear in in Genesis 12 that that God's intention in choosing Abram was never to restrict God's saving purposes to the ethnic nation of Israel. But through Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. How was God going to do that? Well, he says, I'm going to change your name. And what does that name change signify? It signifies that you will become not just the father of Israel. But the father of a multitude of nations and my specific covenant with you and your offspring is that I will be your God. In other words, God's covenant with Abraham from day one was fundamentally about bringing all the nations of the world into a spiritual relationship with God. And so when we get to the New Testament, We must let God tell us what he meant by this covenant to Abraham. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, verse 7, Know then that it is those that are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, notice that, preached the gospel beforehand to whom? To Abraham, saying, In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so Paul is clear in the New Testament that the gospel and the salvation of the Gentiles, you and me here today, this is not some afterthought because Israel rejected Jesus. Some kind of parenthesis, hockeys, plan B. In actual fact, the salvation of you and me and the Gentile nations was always part of God's plan A. God only has one plan because he's sovereign. That is to bring every people and every tribe and every language into a relationship with God, into the true Israel of God. And so Paul goes on and he says in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings. Referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. And again, we must let God tell us what this promise to Abraham meant. And Paul could not be clearer. God's promises to Abraham and his offspring is a very specific reference to Jesus Christ. The promises of God to Abraham are not fulfilled in ethnic nation of Israel. They are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to clarify this finally and fully. In verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That's a reference to the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into this one offspring who is Christ... You've put on Christ. And if you've put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's not even the distinction in a sense, spiritually speaking, between male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So we come back then to, to Revelation, to John's vision And we find in chapter 7 the most amazing description of the purposes of God from before the foundation of the world to save a people for himself, this kingdom of priests who stand before him, people made up of every nation and tribe and people and language, but they all have one thing in common. What is that? They are all clothed in white robes. They all have palm branches in their hands, the sign of, of victory. And they cry out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Doesn't this picture in heaven, those words just make you want to jump up and join with this heavenly throng in song? It should. We we should actually just pause now and sing a hymn. uh, Because that's what's going on in heaven. And that's exactly what we see is going on with this multitude what were they doing? We see in verse 11 and 12 and, and 15, we are told that in response, all the angels of heaven, as they look on this multitude of believers worshiping God and Jesus, the angels fall on their faces before the throne of God and they worship. Amen, they say. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The scene back in chapter 5 was very similar, except it was missing the voice of the redeemed. We had four living creatures back there. We had the 24 elders. We had the myriad of angels. We had all of creation in a general sense worshiping God. But now the scene in heaven is completed with the praise and the worship of God's people. The people of God are presented to John as this great multitude who not only worship But verse 15, if you glance down there, tells us that they serve God day and night in his temple. What an amazing picture of the church of Jesus Christ. What a picture of what all eternity is like. This multitude of redeemed people of God worshiping him and serving him for all eternity. And so I need to ask you a question then this morning. How does this final scene, this perfect picture of what your eternity is going to look like as a believer? If you're a believer today, chapter 7, verse 7 to 19 is a description of what your eternity looks like. How does that affect, very practically, how you are living your life on this earth? How do you view being part of the kingdom of God already now on earth? More specifically, what is your attitude to the church? How does the Honey Ridge Baptist Church compare to this heavenly reality? Are we a congregation of people from all the nations and tribes and languages of our country? Or at least of our city? Are we worshipping God together for his great salvation? And is our time spent serving him in his temple? We are the local temple of Jesus Christ here at Honeyridge. Now, we've been wrestling um, as elders over the last few months with regards to how we should address the, the massive problem of spiritual detachment, which has crept like a cancer into the hearts of so many of our church during COVID. People who otherwise go to work, do their shopping in malls and supermarkets, meet with friends in restaurants, play sport, go to movies, visit their families, but have been practically absent from the gathering of God's people for many, many months. I hope you can see that there is nothing individualistic about heaven. Nothing. Everything described is corporate. It's it's gathered, and it's characterized by service, not just attendance. Attendance but by serving God before His throne day and night. How does the attitude of the Apostle Paul in, in Philippians 1 then compare with your thinking about life here on earth, your anticipation for heaven? Listen to what Paul says. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. There's the service. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, he says to the Philippians. And so convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ. Paul says, for me to be alive is about living for Jesus. And so if I die, that's a bonus. That's my gain, because then I get Jesus. Then I get my reward. My whole life is about the fruitful service of Jesus. It's about serving Jesus in his church. Did you see his heart for the people of God? And so while it would be awesome to die and to go to heaven... Jesus has still got work for me to do here on earth, says Paul, which is to see you grow in your faith and in your joy in the Lord. And so he has a rather difficult and uncomfortable application for all of us today. Your attitude to and involvement in the local church reveals much about your anticipation for heaven. Can I say that again? Your attitude to... And your involvement in the local church reveals much about your attitude to heaven. Your anticipation for heaven. My deep fear as a pastor is that lockdown has not so much revealed a lack of interest in the Honey Ridge Baptist Church as much as it's perhaps revealed a lack of interest in Jesus Christ. Now how can I say that? Well, if the gathered worship of God has become a choice each week on comfort or convenience, and if serving God in this local spiritual temple here at Honey Ridge has become a burden for you or unimportant to you, then can I say respectively, you don't really want to go to heaven because that is what this vision reveals heaven is all about. It's all about the worship and the service of God. Now, as I'm saying these things, I can already hear the objections. Maybe it was my own objections being raised in my heart. Clinton, you are just guilt-tripping me into coming back to church. Stop being so legalistic. After all, we're no longer under law. We're under grace. Well, just hold that objection. I'll come to it at the end. Let's move on to the third question. These people in heaven, this multitude around the throne, where did they come from? Verse 13 and 14. And as we continue in the vision, we see something fascinating in verse 13. John moves from being a a kind of a spiritual spectator to being a, a participant. One of the elders comes up in this vision to John and speaks to him and says in verse 13, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I just love John's response to this question from the elder. It's been something very instructive for my own heart as I've been preparing this week. Uh, I don't have to have all the answers. When the elder asked John who these people are, this great multinational, multiracial, multilingual group clothed in white robes, John doesn't say, well, you know... The, the futurist pre-trib, pre-mill dispensationals, they think this group is that. And then the pre-trib, post-mill group, they think it's that. And the amill no-trib group, they think it's that. No, John just humbly responds, Sir, you know. In other words, please tell me. And the elder responds graciously to John's confusion and tells him, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What an amazing description of a Christian, a person who has come out of the great tribulation of life on this earth, having been washed and made white in the blood of Jesus. Now, I don't really want to get sidetracked on the great tribulation today, and I do expect more emails. It's okay. Um, Shane's preaching in a couple weeks' time. I'll have lots of time to uh, respond to your emails over Easter. Um, But I do need to say that I do not believe the Bible teaches this to be a future-only, terrible time of suffering for seven years before the return of Jesus. Those who teach that view hold that the church by that point has been raptured, has been removed from the earth and will escape the great tribulation. And yet I have not found any evidence in Scripture for the teaching that the tribulation is an only future event which the church will escape. I'm going to skip over some of the technicalities there. It's in my notes, and I'm happy to share these with you. But just for the sake of time, um, those who hold to this great tribulation being something very different to the general use of the word tribulation in Scripture, the burden of proof is on them because nowhere else in Scripture does that phrase great tribulation apply to some future-only event. So what does the tribulation or the great tribulation refer to? The most natural understanding, as you'd see in your diagram, is it is the tribulation that the the church of Jesus Christ faces from the first coming to the second coming of Jesus. And this multitude of redeemed people in heaven, they've been washed by the blood. They are the collection of all believers who've lived on the earth, who've passed through the tribulations of this life and have gone to be with Jesus in heaven. The word translated tribulation here in Revelation 7, 14, occurs over 50 times in the New Testament and almost exclusively refers to the trials and the afflictions and the suffering and the persecution of the church. In the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Jesus made it clear that his people will suffer tribulation for the name of Christ before AD 70, Great tribulation during A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and continued tribulation after A.D. 70. And then the rest of the New Testament confirms that tribulation is part of all of our lives as Christians. Look at John 16. Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Romans 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 says, therefore, Paul writes to the church, he said, when we could bear it no longer, we sent Timothy to you to establish and exhort you, encourage you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. It's exactly the same Greek word, tribulations. For you yourself know that we are destined for this, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer tribulation just as it has come to pass, just as you now know. And there are, as I say, 50 other verses. We'll stop there. But besides this wider teaching of the New Testament about what this tribulation is, what does Revelation tell us this tribulation is? Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation... And the kingdom and the patient uh, endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. John was a fellow saint going through the tribulation. And then Jesus himself to the church in Smyrna said in chapter 2 verse 9, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but not they're the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Well, what is that? The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. I mean, what can be greater tribulation than tribulation that ends in death? And Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Now, why is this practically important for us this morning? I believe it's important because all the tribulation we face as Christians is part of God's sovereign plan. It's part of his purposes, and it's part of what God does to prepare us for heaven. God does not prepare us for heaven by giving heaven to us now. In other words, that's your best life now, theology. It's the prosperity gospel theology. God does not prepare us for heaven by removing the church from the tribulation. No, Paul says in Romans 5 verse 3, We rejoice in our sufferings. The same word, tribulation. Knowing that tribulation does what? Produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary tribulation, same word. And if you want to know what Paul's referring to, go and read chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, verse 24 to 28. To understand what Paul considers to be light momentary afflictions or tribulations, you'll be surprised. But he says all of this is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're fading, they're passing away. Tribulation causes us to see the things that are eternal. Tribulation in this life is what God uses to prepare us for glory. It's what produces in us endurance and character and hope. Someone said to me yesterday, Uh, We all want to be in a comfort zone, but nothing grows in a comfort zone. That's exactly what this is referring to. God puts us into these times of tribulation to grow us and to prepare us for glory. So to hold that the tribulation is a future-only event which bypasses the church, I think is to ignore the clear teaching of over 50 verses in Scripture. And to miss the purpose for which the book of Revelation was given in the first place. This book was written to encourage John in his tribulation as a prisoner on Patmos. It was written to encourage the seven churches in their tribulation as they were being put to death. It's written to strengthen you and me today in the tribulations that we face for the name of Christ. But much more so than you and me today, it's written to encourage our persecuted brothers and sisters in Iran and China In the Ukraine and Russia to persevere through their tribulation in the hope of this eternal weight of glory, which is for them in heaven. And so finally today, and I'm going to be very brief here, um, what was this group enjoying um, in verses 15 to to 17? Um, And just we don't have time to look at these verses in detail. Let me just bullet point them. We see in verse 15, they are enjoying for all eternity the shelter of God and the joy of his presence. They are enjoying the provision of God and they are fully satisfied. Verse 16a and 17b. They are enjoying the protection of God from all that would harm them. Verse 16b. And they are enjoying the comfort of God who removes all their sorrows. One commentator speaks about wiping away every tear from their eye as the God who holds the divine handkerchief. And verse 17 tells us that all of these things will be enjoyed in heaven for all eternity because the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. If you had a problem with the lion becoming a lamb, uh, now the lamb has become a shepherd. But it's really not a problem, is it? Because Jesus is all three. So I want to close and just come back to that objection that was raised earlier about me trying to guilt trip you into coming back to church and serving the Lord here at Honeyridge. You see, a proper understanding of the gospel is that there is no place for the worship and the service of God here on earth or in heaven which is motivated by guilt or a sense of duty. That's absolutely foreign in heaven. In verse 14, we are told that the, heaven, uh, that the multitude in heaven who've been washed and forgiven by the blood of the Lamb, by the death of Jesus Christ in their place, it says in verse 15, Therefore, therefore they worship before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down His life for the sheep. He died in our place. And now the Lamb is risen and reigning over all things as our shepherd. The reality of this good news, of this gospel, is what motivates the incredible response of worship and service. So if all of eternity is going to be about worshiping and serving God in His temple, surely that same attitude, that same response should be the very lifeblood that, that motivates our worship and service of God here at Honeyreach. So, as I close, what you and I need to worship and serve God on earth is not more incentives to come to worship, it's not more motivation to serve in our ministries, it's certainly not more guilt tripping to get you out of bed on a Sunday morning. What we need is a bigger vision of Jesus a bigger vision of the gospel of our salvation. And that is exactly what John has given us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible insight into what is in store for us in heaven. We pray that the truths of the realities that grip the hearts of those saints, that multitude around the throne in heaven, as they worship the Lamb who was slain for them, would grip our hearts here on earth. Forgive us for our complacency. Forgive us, Lord God, when we have lost sight of who you are and your great salvation. And won't you stir within us as your people again a fresh zeal to worship and a deep desire and ability to serve. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.